invite you to take your uh, worship guide or uh, to uh, look up on the screen, if you would. Uh, we're going to read together today the Apostles' Creed. This is the third in a series that we're doing, and is another person that I've been looking at in my study of this. We're really not preaching on the Apostles' Creed. We're preaching on the Scripture. If you remember, we've already said that the Apostles' Creed is a concise summary of those things that we hold dear and true uh, that will help bring clarity uh, to our understanding of the Word of God, help build our faith to avoid error, to correct error, and be strengthened and nurtured in our walk with the Lord. So, I'm going to ask you to follow along after me. This is on three different slides, or uh, if that's hard for you to see, look in your worship guide. It's down at the bottom of the outline. And I want you to declare these truths from the Word of God. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended to heaven and sits on the right hand of the Father Almighty from whence he shall come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of the saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Lord, we thank you now that we can proclaim these truths as we just finished singing, help us not only to speak these, but to know them in our heart and to live them with our lives. We thank you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Do you know what you just did when you spoke those words of affirmation about the things that we believe? You gave a, let me call it this, a pledge of allegiance to the basic truths of the faith and at the same time, you gave a statement of your rejection of the cultural narrative around you. Now, we're going to flesh that out, obviously, in this message and in the days ahead, the Lord willing. But we're going to walk through this next phrase. And this is massive. As I shared with you last week, I am absolutely intimidated by trying to go over all of these things today. But we're going to seek to do it and draw out just the, the nuggets of what we can hang on to so that we can increase not only our knowledge of, but our love for our great and awesome and mighty God who is also our Father. Now, remember last week, we talked about some of these things. 
We said when you say the words, I believe in God, we differentiate ourselves when we say that, obviously, from atheists. But we also differentiate ourselves from just the person who says generically, I believe in God. I know you've had those kinds of conversations, or I hope you have. When you you begin talking about your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will affirm, I believe in God, and the person you're talking to who does not have any outward evidence of faith at all says, oh, I believe in God. We're not talking about that kind of a generic have faith in but we're attaching that to the object of our faith, as we said last week, the one true living God. Now, I referenced twice now last week. Do you remember the sermon from last week? Somebody was asking me this last week, what did I preach about? And I went blank. And I thought, if I can't remember what I preached about, I don't know that I can expect you to. So let me go back and remind you at least the the, the core principle. The the thing that we tried to do last week was to identify. We went all the way back in the Old Testament and tried to identify this one true living God in whom we say we believe. And so we went back and we we told a couple of stories, if you remember. The story of, of, of Moses having this encounter with this burning bush and he walks up and the voice from the bush says take off your shoes this is holy ground and he begins to have this encounter and the voice from the bush says I've chosen you to go and lead the people of Israel do you remember we talked about God saying I have heard and I have seen we kind of made a big deal about that for, for us God sees and he hears what his people are going through And so he said, Moses, I want you to go, and I I want you to lead your people out of Egypt. And Moses balked, wouldn't you? Moses said to God, if if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, uh, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, well, if you, I'm going to paraphrase here, well, if you've really had this encounter with this living God and he said, do you go and lead my people out of Egypt, then what's his name? What shall I say to them? And God said this to Moses. Now, I believe providentially, obviously, this was a setup so that God is going to get his covenant name out, that he would speak through all generations. He said, here's my name, Moses. I am I am who I am. He said, say to this people of Israel, I am has sent you. You remember, we we talked about that a little bit. Four Hebrew characters that we would loosely pronounce as Yahweh. Jehovah is the common way that that's said today. But you've got to understand that this is the identifying name of the one true living God who has made covenant with his people through all ages. His name is eternally I Am. God also said to Moses, Say this to the people of Israel, The Lord, 
Now remember, when you're reading your Bible in virtually every translation and you see the capital L-O-R-D, you can know that that is the sacred, the unspeakable name of God. The Jewish people wouldn't even speak it. They would use the name Lord, Adonai. They, they, would, they would substitute that in there. So he said, you can say this to the people. I am the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered through all generations. And you can almost hear the thunderclap at the end. This one true God who is I am has also said some things about himself. Now this is important for our understanding for the days ahead of what we have spoken just a few minutes ago in the Apostles' Creed. He reminds us in Isaiah before me no God He's not even going to capitalize it. No God, little g, was formed. Nor shall there be any God after me. Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel and his Redeemer, the Lord. What's that name? Come on, what's that name? The Lord of hosts. What's that name? Yahweh. In fact, if you saw that in the Hebrew, it would be Yahweh or Jehovah Sabaoth. The Lord of hosts is his name connects it with all of the other covenant names in the Old Testament. He said, I am the first and I am the last. Now, wait a minute, I want you to get something here. Does that sound like something that was said about anyone else? Besides me, there is no God. I am the Lord. What's that name? Yahweh. That is my name. My glory I will give to no one else. No other gets to use that name. Do you understand, Isaiah? Tell this to the people. He is the first and the last. There is no other beside him. He will absolutely not share his name, nor will he share his glory with another. Now, here's what I want to do. I want, you see your outline there? I'm going to consider three of those um, pieces together, and then we're going to kind of get out of order to consider the... the the peace, our Father, last. Okay? First thing we're going to talk about is creator of heaven and earth. All right? Creator of heaven and earth. Let's look at a scripture. I've got lots of scripture for you today. You ought to write these down, all of them, and look these up later on because they will add to your study of this, your understanding of this. God said that he alone is our creator. Thus says the Lord. What's that name? Yahweh. I, you know, and, and again, we say this and we don't even think about it. Remember that the Jewish scribes would wash their hands before they would even write it down. They wouldn't speak it. Now, I hope there's a little question, should we? And the answer is yes, and that's what the, the thrust of the sermon is about today. Okay, just hang on. So he says, I'm the, your, the, the Lord, Yahweh, who made all things, who alone stretched out the heavens. Is there any other creator who spread out the earth by myself? He alone created the earth, the universe, the cosmos. 
that at least one atheist has said the cosmos is all there is, all there was, all there ever will be. I beg to differ. The cosmos is but a speck in the hand of God who created it. He said, I made the earth. Now here's where he begins to get personal. I created man on it. It was my hands that stretched out the heavens. I, I just want to show you the bigness and the glory of God again. And I commanded all their hosts, for thus says who? Yahweh, who created the heavens. He is God, who formed the earth and made it. He established it. He did not create it empty. He formed it to be inhabited. I am Yahweh. I am the Lord, and there is no other. He created everything that you see around you, everything that is unseen. Not only the big, but the small. Everything has been created, and He sustains it for His glory forever and ever. Now, let me just stop right here. I think I've shared with you before that as, as elders, we have used the whole gist of what I'm preaching about, the solas and the apostles' creed, and, and we've asked questions, and we have these three circles, concentric circles, or three tiers, if you will, and, and we say th this is what guides us and leads us in decision-making. How do we determine what's core and what are those things that are also important and the things that we can disagree about? And at the very core are the solas. We're created by uh, to, to, to glorify God. Salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, according to the scriptures alone, for the glory of God alone. And then we affirm the tenets of the Apostles' Creed. We do as a church. And then there are other things that are not quite in that, that first circle, but they're, they're very close and they, they're so important to us. For example, we believe as a church that God created everything. We believe further in a literal creation. I believe further, there may be some of you who do not fully agree with this yet. You're still going to heaven. I say this humbly, you will find out when you get there. That the earth was created in a literal six days. And after God created what men have said is the crown of his creation, man, he rested. And that seventh day is not a throwaway, by the way. Just read Hebrews and you'll see that there's a whole thing about God's rest. Now, here's why. We've said this a couple of weeks back, and it's important that you begin to understand that now. Evolutionists that we disagree with, right? Okay. Evolutionists often speak of value, the value of humans. Self-esteem is important. They speak of, of ethics. I, 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 don't, I don't know of many freethinkers or atheists who don't also have a sense of morals, at least in their own thinking, but just kind of think with me about how inconsistent it is when you, when you go back to the very beginning, according to evolutionists, at least the very beginning of man, where did we come from? 
According to an evolutionist, we came from a kind of goo, primordial soup. I mean, literally, that's what they, they have called it. I, oh, forgive me if I sound like I'm just making fun, but how, almost how can you help it? Now, this is a quote from Edward J. Carnell. He, he is a, as far as I can tell, he's a theologian. R.C. Sproul quotes him, and so I, I always like to look up quotes and see if I can find them. As far as I can tell, this guy is a theologian, but he also believes this. He's a, an evolutionist. Wow. That says a lot about what he believes about God. How could he read these things we just read and believe this? Here's... Okay, here it is, guys. Here's, here's what you are. Modern man appears to be but a grown-up germ. That thing that made you so sick last week, Jeanette, okay? We're just a grown-up germ, bacteria, virus, I guess, sitting on a great gear of a vast cosmic machine which is, by the way, according to deists, someday destined to cease functioning because of lack of power. The whole thing's just going to run out of steam. And you're just a germ. Now, now, you know, here's the thing that I have... If if you're a grown-up germ and I'm a grown-up germ, if we're nothing more than an accident of cosmic forces... And the destiny of our whole human race is at the mercy of these impersonal, cosmic, chaotic forces. Does that have any point of significance at all? Why should a germ care about morality? Why would a germ even prefer life over death? And I saw this great quote. I'm trying to remember who said it, but it was great. Listen to it. It, It's a mouthful. More nonsensical than a hostile universe. We often speak in terms of the universe being hostile, but more nonsensical than a hostile universe is an indifferent one. why when we affirm our God, our one and only true God, Yahweh, is the creator of heaven and earth, that statement is not only a pledge of allegiance to what we believe, it is an act of rebellion. I got this from Matt Chandler, and he's got an excellent video series out on that. I listened to half of the one that he was preaching on this. And I thought, wow, I'm tempted to just write it down and preach it like he did, and I thought, I can't do that. He, he takes a little bit different direction. Go and, go and listen to it. It's good. But he made this point about the creator of the universe, that it's nonsense more nonsensical than a hostile universe is an indifferent one. He is the creator of heaven and earth. He's also almighty. Remember that. Now let's look at some other verses out of Isaiah. This is a mouthful. 
I am he. There is none that can deliver from my hand. I work, and who can turn it back? We're talking about him being almighty. Remember the former things of old? I am God. There is no other. We've already heard that theme. I am God. There is none like me. Declaring the end from the beginning, from ancient times, the things that not yet done. How can he do that? Because he's God. Saying, my counsel shall stand, and I will accomplish all my purpose. The Lord reigns. That simply is another way of saying God is sovereign. You hear that a lot around here, don't you? God is sovereign. What does that mean? It means the Lord is king. He reigns. Yahweh reigns. He is robed in majesty. Yahweh, the Lord, is robed. He has put on strength as his belt. Yes, the world is established. It shall never be moved. Your throne is established from of old. You are from everlasting. He's all powerful. He's almighty. That's what it says here. He is sovereign. Now, get this. This does not just speak to his being strong. It speaks to him being in control for his ultimate glory and for our ultimate good. Okay, question. And, and this, a lot of times when uh, young Christians start studying the Bible, they start getting serious and they hear this thing about God being all-powerful and there's just this little uh, ordinary part. They want to try to stump older Christians and theologians who've been around for a long time. And some of you have heard this kind of question. They will ask, can God do anything? Now be careful. Don't, don't just blurt out an answer right now. Because I want to ask you, can God do anything? And then they'll throw in questions like this to make it specific. Can God, if he can do anything, he's almighty like you Christians say, can he create a triangle with four sides? Well, he's almighty. Can God, if he's almighty, create a rock big enough that he can't move? Oh, boy, that messes with my mind. Again, may I use the word, if anybody talks to you about that, smile real big and then say, nonsensical. That's nonsense. God can never do anything that is self-contradictory. In other words, he cannot do anything against his character. God can never be capricious. Just acting like he wants, you know, anything he wants to do. Creating a triangle with four sides. God can never be unloving. God can never be random. He can never be inconsistent. He can never be unjust. I could just go on and on. We'd take the rest of our time. But let me just say this. God can never fail. That is the point of him being sovereign. That is the point in your life of him being in control. He can never fail. And without the certainty, I, I can't get into this deeply, but, but listen, without the certainty of God's 
sovereign, loving providence, life would be unbearable. Can you imagine a life where God is not in control? If you have the idea of duality, there's God, and then Satan is co-equal, the yin and the yang and all the rest of that, I feel sorry for you. Life like that would be unbearable. Wednesday night, we were talking about this in our little share and prayer time. We were talking about this very, very thing, about life being unbearable about that. And one of the guys in that group, well, I'll just say who it was. It was Jonathan Parkhurst. And he just blurted out, Romans 8, 28. (laughs) And I said, Jonathan, you are exactly right. How could we go to the promise that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose if we don't believe that he is almighty? Okay, now, we're just going to get to this part before we get to the the big idea of today's message. Do I have enough time? Yes, I do. Okay. Now, you've got to get an idea, a picture of this, and this is why later on we're going to see Father, Son, Holy Spirit. We, We sang about that today, didn't we? The Trinity, that word that's not ever used in the Bible, but is a fact. Okay? This is what drove the Jews, specifically the Pharisees, the religious leaders of Jesus' day, absolutely mad about Jesus. Because he took all of these things that we have been saying, and and I'm going to refer you to a couple of scriptures, increasingly we can see, like in the Gospels, the Gospel of John, that's what I'm going to be using today, increasingly the crowds became, they, they were more hostile They were more confrontational. Why? If some itinerant preacher came in here, scruffy looking, well, maybe I shouldn't say that. I I don't know that Jesus was scruffy looking. I know that from Isaiah's description of him, he was nothing to look at. That's what I mean. Wasn't a real big, flashy guy and he he just an itinerant preacher he showed up he did some amazing things but increasingly he started saying some things that were very upsetting it came to a head listen to this and we're going to get to the next part we've already said God the creator of heaven and earth the almighty we're going to get to this part it all came to a head when Jesus called God his father And then, when he used the sacred name, Yahweh, I am, I'm this self-existent one. It was no mistake, Jesus was not misinformed and neither were his critics. And it was when he called God his Father and dared to use the name Yahweh to refer to himself that things became explosive. He said to them, people, 
the crowd, you're from below, I'm from above. Well, they could have said, well, like an angel or maybe like a created being, you're of this world, I'm not of this world. I told you that you would die in your sins for unless you believe that what? Yahweh, that I am he, you will die in your sins. Do you think the crowds understood correctly? So Jesus said to them, when you have lifted up the Son of Man, and, and he knew his crucifixion was coming, you will know that, here he says it again, I am he, that I do nothing on my own authority, but speak just as the Father taught me. Jesus said to them, truly, truly, well, you talk about galling them. I say to you, before Abraham was born, I am. If there was any doubt about his I am statements before this, there was no question when he said this. How do you know? So they picked up stones to throw at him. Jesus hid himself and went to the temple. Now, in case you were maybe think, okay, well, they were, they were just playing catch, okay? Here, Jesus, catch some rocks. I know that's far-fetched, but no, that's not what was happening. The Jews picked up stones again to stone him, and he asked them why. Jesus answered them, I've shown you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you stoning me? The Jews answered, it's not for a good work that we're going to stone you. But look, look at this, but for blasphemy, there was no doubt in their minds because you, being a man, make yourself God. Now, if he had been just a man like Peter or like Paul, he would have, he would have stopped them. He would have said, oh, no, 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 you, you misunderstand. I'm just a man. I'm not God. He didn't do that, and they knew exactly who he was claiming to be. Look at this. When you put Isaiah and you put John 17 side by side, I am Yahweh, I am the Lord, that is my name. I give my glory to no other, nor praise to carved idols. And now, Father Jesus said, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Folks, we haven't even gotten to talk about Jesus, the Son of God yet, but I just want to show you the teaching of Trinity, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit is all through Scripture. Now, I want to get to the last part, and this is, this is really the crux. All of this is important that I've said, okay? But the crux of what you need to hear today is the crux of, I think, what we find here in this statement of the Apostles' Creed. I believe in God, the Father Almighty. Look at the big idea of the, uh, in, in the outline of the message today. Our covenant God, Yahweh, is not only the infinitely powerful God, He is also an intensely personal Father who has created us and who sustains us. He's the Father. What does that mean? Three, three things real quickly. You don't necessarily have to write these down, but as you read the Bible, you're going to find three connotations, three distinctions about God's fatherhood. First of all, God is Father Almighty, Creator of heaven and earth. There are some who say, we're all children of God. Has anybody ever heard that? There was a, a, a while back, a few years ago, 
everybody would say, well, we're all God's children. No, we're not. Okay, there's a verse in Malachi. That's specifically referring to the Jews. I think it's Malachi 2.10. Let's see if I wrote it down. I did not. But there's another passage of Scripture, and you can look this up for yourself. When, Jesus, when, when Paul was talking at the Areopagus to some very intelligent people, and he starts quoting some of their philosophers. And he says something. We are all God's... Well, this is... Paul was such a good theologian. He did not say we are all God's children. That is something reserved for covenant people alone. Uniquely in the Old Testament, the Jews were God's children. Uniquely in the New Testament... We covenant believers are God's children, but Paul says in Acts 17, you are all God's offspring. God has created you. And and if you look at the context, what's he doing? He's preaching the gospel like we normally do. If God created you, you are responsible to him. Because you're not, you are under the wrath of God, and you need to repent and turn in faith to Jesus Christ. That's the gospel. Second thing, there's the sense of God being the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And again, this this points to the Trinity. It it points to the inner... And how do you explain? You can't explain it. It's still a mystery and mystical. It points to the inner life of the Godhead, the Son of God who called God not only His Father... One time he actually called him another more endearing term that we're going to get to in just a minute. He called him daddy. Third, and that's what I want to go over with you just for the next few minutes before we finish. The third is the unique sense in which you and I share with our covenant father that we are his children. J.I. Packer. I I pulled my old ratty copy, underlined and and falling apart copy of Knowing God by J.I. Packer off my shelf. And I remembered as I pulled it off my shelf, Jim Jackson has shared over and over. That's Jim, I think you've said that's probably your favorite book. And I went back over some of my underlining. And I'm telling you, get a copy of that book. And I, could, I couldn't say everything, I couldn't even hardly say anything that J.I. Packer said in the chapter, Sons of God. I didn't remember reading it years ago, probably in the early 70s when I read it. But, but he says this, what, listen to this, what is a New Testament Christian? That can be answered in many ways, but the richest answer is that a New Testament Christian is one who has God for his father. Did the Old Testament Jews know God as his father, as their father? Yes, they did. But there was an emphasis that they had after Israel was led out of Egypt. They knew God as a a fearsome an awesome God. He, he had already displayed his plagues on Egypt. 
He had displayed his power by destroying the Egyptian army in the Red Sea. And then his children, now get this, his children come to worship him at Mount Sinai. And here's what he said to them. By the way, all of this is true. You shall set limits for the people all around, Moses. And they come up close to Mount Sinai, saying, Take care not to go up into the mountain, or even to touch the edge of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall be put to death. Why? Because his name is Yahweh. He is an awesome God. He's not to be trifled with. And in the Old Testament, we see this picture where God, primarily, the the, the one word that describes God in the Old Testament is the word holiness. He is otherness. He is separate. And then we come to the New Testament and things change. Now, hang on. I, I want to be clear about this. God is the same today, yesterday, and forever. But there is a fleshing out of who God is. In the Old Testament, if you stick with that, you will not be wrong. You will just be incomplete. And there are preachers out there that just preach the holiness of God. I think I've been guilty of that. And if you never make it to the New Testament concept, if holiness is the word that's used to describe the God in the Old Testament, and it is when we flesh it out in the New Testament, what is the one word that symbolizes what God is like? The word is Father. He's still holy. Don't lose that. Okay? Please. But He is our Father. Now, you you look back at that. Don't come near my presence. What does He say to those of us who are in Christ? He says, we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. So, what do we do growing out of that? Let us with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Let me just throw another one out of Hebrews to you. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened to us through the curtain, that is through his flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. And let me just throw one more out there from the book of Ephesians, in whom we have boldness and competent access through faith in him. Uniquely, God is our Father. But there's one word that I want to use. I I want to try to get more personal than that. Three times it's used in Scripture. Jesus used it once. 
when he was going to the cross. Paul uses it twice, first in Galatians and then in Romans, to speak of our relationship with him. And it, it, it's, it's, a more, it's a more intimate word. It's not father. Father is a good word. Don't get me wrong. But it, it's even more intimate. It could mean dear father, but the most usual translation of this word is daddy. Years ago, we were at the Grand Canyon. My family and I were. And uh, there, there were people running around. And there was a family that was Jewish. You say, how do I know they were Jewish? At least that was my guess. They looked Asian or Oriental. But that wasn't the thing that really gave it away. It was when they were, and they were within earshot and the, the mom and dad were standing right there. They had a little toddler. A little toddler was standing over here. And with joy, that little toddler was just running all around. And he ran up to his daddy with his arms out. And he said, Abba, Abba. And I'd been to seminary and I'd studied this. And I'd seen that in the Bible, Jesus called and we can call God our daddy, our Abba. But I had never really understood what that meant until I saw and heard that image. We can, we can get forensic. We can get illegal. We can talk about adoption. I, I, I wish I had time to talk about that, that we're adopted deliberately into his family. We can never be disowned. We have full sonship. We have full rights, full security. All of our sins are forgiven. We have acceptance for the future. But I, I want to personalize that by saying he is the one that we've looked at these scriptures he is the one that we can run to he is the one with whom we can share our joys he is the one listen you, you don't have to vie for his attention my kids were little I, I remember I probably all three did it I see it sometimes I remember Katie doing it one time I was holding her in my arms and, and I was, she was talking to me, and I was doing what dads sometimes do. I was ignoring her. Daddy, Daddy, and I was doing this. And she put her hands out and put them on my face and did this. Daddy. You, you don't have to do that with God. He has your attention. He's engaged with you. He's there to give you guidance and support and provision and protection. CJ, that was I, that baptism. I, I love it when dad's baptized too, but I, I don't know that I've ever seen quite that picture. And I thought to myself, what a picture of a daddy. I mean, you were baptizing. That's a very formal event, and, you know, all the rest. I was thinking of that. No, 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 no. With Clay and with Claire in your arms and you turned them around you pinched their little nose so they wouldn't get water up their nose and I thought what a picture of our daddy who loves us and cares for us in every conceivable way I believe in God the one true God the daddy 
almighty creator of heaven and earth. He will give you everything you need for your life. I'd like the men to make their way down. And I, I just want to give some instruction and encouragement. If you are a follower of Christ, we're going to take the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper is for believers. And what a time to get into right relationship. See, there's a vertical component. People tell me all the time, I didn't take the Lord's Supper, I don't feel worthy. Let me let you in on a secret. You're not. That's not the issue with the Lord's Supper. The vertical dimension is that through Jesus Christ, you are made worthy. He is worthy. But there's a horizontal dimension in this. Making things right with your fellow man that kind of thing that should happen before we partake of the elements confessing knowing that God has forgiven you freely in the Lord Jesus Christ and so we're going to have time for, for meditation we're going to invite you to sing at least in one of those songs you don't have to sing but uh, you may and, and meditate while you're holding the elements and then we'll come back and take those elements together they're going to come together two cups We'll take of the bread first and then of the cup with the juice that represents the blood of Jesus Christ. But I want to pray for us. And then after that, we will distribute the elements. We will worship in song and then we'll partake of the elements. Father, I pray now in the name of Jesus that you take uh, the feeble words that we have been sharing. And Lord, you drive your gospel into our hearts for those of us who know you that we might live the implication of the gospel of forgiveness and acceptance that might drive our lives but Lord if there's anyone here today who does not know Jesus Christ I pray that today would be the day of salvation that, that man woman boy or girl young person would see the reality of their sin being under the wrath of God would turn away from that sin repent turn to faith in Jesus Christ and Lord we pray for our time now around the table that you might make this a special time of realizing the gospel we're declaring the gospel and then of making sure that reconciliation has taken place where that needs to happen so we love you Lord and we ask you to teach us during this beautiful picture of the death and burial and resurrection again Jesus Christ. We pray this in his name. Amen.